This is Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the retail doctor. I honestly thought that companies would kind of take the gas pedal off a little bit during the pandemic because they had bigger fish to fry. But you know what? They didn't. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with your host, Bob Fibbs the champion for a more human connection in retail for over 30 years as a retail doctor. Bob is the authority on brick and mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest luxury brands to independent retailers of all sizes. Today, I'm talking with Bruce Winder, a Toronto-based retail analyst, business instructor, and author of the book, Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on, Bob. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So uh, with a title like that, what was the impetus for writing your book? Well, I've always wanted to write a book. And, you know, I've done about 30 years in retail, you know, in different jobs. And I thought, you know what, I want to capture some of the trends as I see them. So I started writing. and It was mostly just sort of a trend book about best-in-class retailers and top trends. And then COVID hit. And I said, well, you know, I better keep writing. So I wrote another chapter or two on on what it was like in retail and COVID in the U.S. and Canada. And then I said, okay, well, let's get my crystal ball out and uh, took a run at maybe how things could be after COVID, knowing that it's all speculation. But, you know, did that and it was sort of something I always wanted to do. And I thought it'd be nice to kind of get out there and and sort of summarize some trends, maybe for some people who are new to retail or didn't have time to follow all the trends like you and I do. And, you know, it might help them out. Well, I appreciate that. I imagine your uh, chapter on during COVID probably is a little shorter than some of the other chapters. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, just a thought there. And, you know, when I looked at your book, it's like, oh, my gosh, this looks really dense. But uh, when I look at uh, people who reviewed it, they all talked about how you like to use puns in your writing, apparently. I do. I'm a bit of a uh, music junkie. I'm a 70s rock and roll junkie. And I, I used a lot of puns and a lot of sort of tongue in cheek type titles in my writing. And it's just to kind of keep it uh, light and also sort of make it my own in terms of my personality. I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. So uh, tell me, what retailers, and you can use this however you want, before, during, or after COVID are doing it well? I think I will cut you quickly to say that obviously, you know, Target, Walmart, and Amazon all did great during, during it. I personally think they all read Bill Gates' book about there's a pandemic coming up in about 10 years, which is why they all added grocery because they knew they'd be, but that's a little cynical. So um, however you want to look at it, what retailers do you think are, are doing well outside of those players and either before, during, or after COVID-19? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I've always enjoyed Ikea. I've always thought Ikea was a best-in-class retailer. I talk about them a lot. And uh, I think they're doing good even after pandemic. They're starting to launch, they're rolling out those city stores And they've taken sort of the whole green initiative very seriously. You know, they've embraced online. Uh, They're just a really smart retailer and and they're vertically integrated. Another retailer I think has done a great job is Lululemon. Lululemon was sort of a little bit fortunate in that they were in a category that was highly desired uh, during the pandemic, you know, with the yoga wear and things. But they're well managed and, and, you know, they have a huge runway as it relates to the men's business as it relates to Asia. And uh, they're just, they're having a few supply chain issues they announced today, but you know what, they've got a great brand. The other thing I like about them is that they own their own brands. I personally think that, you know, the future of retail is basically own brands. 
and retailers that buy from manufacturers who don't own the brand, I think they're going to have a hard time competing with the large aggregators. So Lululemon, another retailer I like is Aritzia, another Canadian, of course, I'm based in Toronto. Aritzia has done a really nice job, very profitable. Again, they have the majority of their products are their own brands. Their Can you explain labels. who that is before we go too far? Because some will be yeah. not. Yeah, you might not uh, have heard of that. So Aritzia started in Vancouver, Canada. I'm going to call it like, you know, 30 years ago. And they offer, um, I would say, sort of higher end, not quite luxury, but higher end accessible um, young ladies wear. And uh, it's something that, you know, you, you would wear to the office, but it's targeting sort of a woman in their 20s, uh, late teens, maybe early 30s. And they invested in their own brands. And they've been very smart and careful in terms of how they roll themselves out. So, that, you know, they're, they're not one of those chains like Target when they came to Canada and blew up with 100 and some odd stores. They just sort of, you know, have added incrementally and they've learned and very profitable, very well run and uh, just a great retailer. So let's go back to Target. Target left Canada with their tail between their legs. And yet everything said this should have been a slam dunk, right? Because Canadians crossed the border to shop at Target it seems like it's a no-brainer. And, you know, I had heard anecdotally people had said they took over failed locations. Uh, they didn't get the A locations when they came. But what is your take on that? Yeah, it's a great question. And a lot of people have been asking that for the last decade or so. But, you know, I love Target. I love shopping in the U.S. I loved it when they came to Canada. I thought this is going to be a slam dunk, like you mentioned. They're going to do great. This is a no-brainer. But I think they kind of tripped over themselves in a few ways. One is they added a new ERP system, Enterprise Resource Planning System in Canada, and their inventories uh, weren't in check. They had too much and too little. Store shelves were empty. Um, they also failed to really match Walmart and some of their pricing, or at least have the perception that they were higher than Walmart. Walmart was uh, took a, a bit of a price war to them. And for some reason, Target got on the wrong side of that and they lost their price perception. Uh, another thing is, to your point, you know, they did inherit and did buy some of the sort of B locations for Zellers. I used to work at Zellers. I was a GMM there for a couple of years. And Zellers was once an amazing Canadian retailer. And uh, they, they sort of, you know, started losing things and started sort of asset stripping over time with a number of owners. And, and you know, when, when Target got those leases, they weren't the best. They weren't the best locations. They also uh, had a smaller box to deal with. The average Zellers store is a lot smaller than the average Target store. Um, and the other thing is, I think they set expectations really high. They said they were going to make a billion dollars a year in profit their first year, and they lost a billion their first year. So I think it was just sadly a comedy of errors and really sad, really surprised. You know, about 20,000 Canadians lost their job in one day. So it was a real, a real hit for Canada. The one thing I will take respect, though, is that the CEO could realize, like, we're really in trouble here. This isn't going to get better incrementally if we don't fundamentally either really invest and start over again, or we just leave. Do you think Target will come back someday? I hope so, but uh, it might take a little while because investors have long memories. You know, maybe when the new Wall Street, when Wall Street turns over and you have new bankers there, you know, you might uh, see that. And I, I hope they do because I think they can get it done. I think it's, it's solvable here. And to your point, yeah, I mean, uh, Brian Cornell had to, had to pull the trigger and get rid of it, and that helped earnings and kind of got Wall Street off his back. But uh, yeah, it's just unfortunate. I hope they do it again, because I do think the brand has some some potential internationally, for sure. Yeah, I would think so. And uh, so, you know, if we're going to be talking about the retailers doing well, so who's not doing well? I mean, obviously, you could say Sears, Kmart, whatever it became, it's pretty much gone. But um, there's other ones 
you know, the earnings came out in May and suddenly Macy's and Nordstrom are saying, hey, it's great to be us. And the big players are saying, oh, it's a challenging market. So what do you make of that? Yeah, I think some of this is just, um, you know, sort of where, which snatch, snack bracket they're in and which stage of evolution they're in. I'm not a big fan of department stores. I honestly think most department stores are gone the way of the dinosaur. They're just hanging on. I used to work at Sears Canada. I was a DMM there for Craftsman. And, and you know, the writing was on the wall decades ago, um, not to mention sort of the way that, you know, management managed the asset in terms of more trying to optimize their financial value versus be a retailer. So I think anyone really, except for Nordstrom, except for um, Saks, is going to have a real hard time in department store. There's new CEOs that come in and out. They've got some nice strategies, but I think they're just buying time, honestly. I think it's just a channel that is in decline, and uh, I don't think anyone can really stop that. I do think there's a there's a play, though, for upper luxury department store because, you know, there are a number of folks who are quite wealthy and they need those department stores. But certainly the newer ones like the Nordstrom. Now, Nordstrom, you know, has suffered as well. They're going to have good quarters and bad quarters. They're a great retailer. They've got amazing customer service. So I can't see them going anywhere anytime soon. No, I agree. And tell me, what uh, what's your take on the metaverse? Should all these brands be <laughs> jumping into the metaverse? I was yeah, that's a great question, Bob. I mean, a lot of people, it just exploded as soon as you know, they changed, Facebook changed their name to Meta, and then you saw Walmart jump on there and, and secure some intellectual property, and that's all you read about now. I, my own personal view is that it's overblown a bit right now, more than a bit. I think it's significantly overblown. Um, I do think, though, that it is a it does make sense as a channel and as an entity, the metaverse, but I think it's going to be a bit of a slow build over the next couple decades before it gets to critical mass, uh, at least a decade before it gets to critical mass. I understand why retailers are investing now. They want to get a toehold in. They want to get the right real estate. They want to get on the right sort of uh, uh, partners and things like that. But I do think it's going to be a very slow build, and it won't be worthy of the press it's getting right now. Well, we got to talk about something, and Amazon already did their drone. So yeah, you know, for what, sure. else, what else are we going to do? Now, you're <laughs> donating 5% of the proceeds from your book to mental health programs in the U.S. and Canada. So why is that? Well, I actually um, I, I suffer from um, some mental illness myself, and I've been open about it. I have OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think if you have OCD, you're just really organized. Well, it's a little more to it than that. It can be a real tough. I'm, I've been treated and I, I can lead a fairly normal life. But I wanted to sort of uh, create a bit of a dialogue and bring it to the forefront of retail. And uh, I want to I want to I'm writing another book actually on neurodiversity, uh, which hopefully comes out in the next year or so. But I wanted to sort of give back. And I also wanted to create a conversation. There's a lot of great discussion about diversity right now as it relates to Black Lives Matter, you know, gender, et cetera. I, I want to put this on the table, too, and say, hey, you know what? There's some really great people who are neurodiverse, maybe who have autism, OCD, you know, Tourette's, dyslexia, who can, who can do some really good things, but you just have to put them in the right spot, you know, and that, that's the key to it, I think. And how do people know that? I mean, is it something that you have to be well-versed and so you see the opportunity with this person? Is it something that the, the person can say, um, I was watching a Temple Grandin not that long ago, great great, uh, great movie. And you realized how she was able to kind of take what she had inherently done to make herself feel better and then brought that to, uh, well, to cows. I'm not going to go any further what she ended up doing with it. But sure. the whole idea was she, she was able to be in the place where that actually could come to the fore. I'm just curious, yeah. how does, how does, how does it happen? Is it someone seeing the potential 
or is it for the person to understand this is what works best for me? Yeah, it's it's a really good question because that's kind of we're on the cusp of that right now. And from what I've read, I'm doing some research now, and there's been a number of companies, mostly in the tech industry, that have embraced neurodiversity. And it's kind of a combination. It's them getting educated and realizing that, you know, especially with the tight labor market in some areas, you know, um, they've got all these people who have some great skills, great education. They just might not be as social as other people. And so, so it's sort of uh, it starts with awareness and understanding on the company side. But it also requires some effort on the candidate side to, um, you know, come forth and be honest and identify it. And then it's sort of a, um, you know, kind of a meeting of the minds. And there are some best practices, which I'm going to hopefully talk about in this book, that sort of creates uh, the, the matching of these two groups so that people who are neurodiverse can find a home and contribute to society. And companies can great, get some great creative people. Because that's one of the things neurodiversity is known as people who are really good with creativity, thinking out of the box and things like that. I think that's the key. You know, I grew up in the 60s and everyone was supposed to look like the Procter & Gamble ads. Everyone was supposed to have that life. And there was no idea of diversity. We were all supposed to do the same. And now it's kind of like, oh, our unique DNA is the fact that everybody is different and it doesn't make it better or worse. I guess that's the thing that was so challenging with growing up in in our in my age anyway was there was this stigma put on anything different. My God, True. she's wearing her hair short. He's exactly. wearing his hair long. Yeah, right. Especially in and, the sixties. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so that whole idea now is upended because, quite simply, in staying with retail, the retail market is we're all a little bit weird and different. We all are, yeah. can't be one thing. And that actually is better for retailers, don't you think? I do. I think so. And I think companies are starting to recognize that now because you're right. I mean, I did 22 years in big corporations, Canadian Tire, uh, Zellers, HBC and Sears, and I hit everything. And I, you know, had the short hair and clean shave and white shirt and blue tie. And I, I you know, that's the only way to survive is to kind of fit that mold. Don't vary from that. You know, you've got to drink the Kool-Aid. And uh, that was the way it was then. I'm hoping that there's an opportunity to sort of get a bit more diverse now where companies realize that by having different points of view, different ways of thinking, different personalities, different opinions and ideologies, they can actually do a better job. Uh, you know, another argument, too, is that, hey, when you look at the customer base of the U.S. and Canada, it's not all a bunch of white guys, right? <laughs> Old white guys. So it's really healthy to have people mixed in. Uh, to your company who understand your customer because they look like your customer and, and act like your customer. I would agree. So give me like three trends that are in your book, Retail Before and During and After COVID-19, that you think have legs in the next uh, five or 10 years. I, I'm not a fan of, I don't think curbside is going to be it myself because once the pandemic end, I didn't see people lined up uh, waiting for that. I think yeah. there's an element of people says, oh, you wait. Mm, maybe. So what would yeah. your top three be? Well, I think one of them for sure is going to be um, the, the increased use of technology. Um, and that's pretty broad. But, you know, I, I think we're at a point now where technology is just going to get more and more important, whether it's self-checkout cashiers, whether it's AI, you know, helping to set promotions, um, whether it's robotics in the warehouse, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, virtual change rooms, the metaverse, augmented reality, virtual reality, there's a whole host facial recognition, they're all there. And I think you're just going to see more and more of that. And that's probably an easy one. That's low hanging fruit. I think we would have all said that. 
Another one that has some legs too, and again, not a big surprise, is the whole green movement, the environmental movement. Um, especially with folks who are a little bit younger, um, they see the writing on the wall. We all see the weather change, and you know, there's more floods, there's more droughts, there's forest fires. So I think this is, you know, this is real, and people realize that, you know, that we have to think about these things. And there's been some back and forth because even the investment community, the institutional investment community, has made it very clear that they're not going to invest in companies that aren't embracing the green movement. But I, you know, I think it's it's here to stay. And I think, you know, I honestly thought that companies would kind of take the gas pedal off a little bit during the pandemic because they had bigger fish to fry. But you know what? They didn't. And and uh, it's going to keep going. So that's what I would say is number two is just the continued, you know, greenness. I think you're going to see more, you know, what I'm from a global sourcing area. And you know what? We think of total cost of ownership when you add everything in the cost of a product, when you buy it offshore. Well, they're probably going to start adding in a green tax. They're probably going to start adding in a a CO2 emissions cost and that total cost of ownership. And that's when things are going to change. So that'll be number two. Number three, I think, um, I, I think, um, you know, you're, you're seeing sort of a, uh, a used products movement. I think that has legs to value, uh, flight to value, you know, uh, maybe not as bad as, as the thirties after the great depression, but, you know, I think you're going to see people, uh, might be tied in with the green, but, sort of value-based, used products, experienced products. It's no longer taboo. When you and I were young, no one wore used clothes or did anything used. It was almost embarrassing, right? It was like you're down and out. Now there's a lot of youngsters, you know, Gen Zs, younger millennials, who see this as actually, you know, an important way to save money, but also to help the environment too. So I, I see a lot of activity with retailers, you know, everyone from thread up to whoever, you know, really sort of getting into this experienced market, and it, even luxury products. A lot of, you know, Rent the Runway or uh, Real Real and things like that. You know, lots of activity there. So I'm going to challenge you on two of your trends just so sure, we have something yeah. to spar with. Yeah, okay. So, uh, you know, the whole used idea for me is uh, it's a lot of money chasing a non-profitable sector. You know, retail is not engineered to go backwards. It's designed to go raw materials come and they go through the system and even though, you know, we're hearing people that are like, oh, REI is now doing used and some other people are doing it. I just keep wondering, it gives you, it's a great marketing program. I just wonder if it really does. And when I look at ThreadUp and all these ones who, you know, are darlings for a while and then everyone's suddenly like, holy crap, we're not making money at this. Yeah. Um, it it also goes to your your other one about green that yes everybody's talking about sustainable oh sustainable oh yes we're, oh, we're you know i just think if is it if it didn't have a press release would it be sustainable but you know <laughs> if you look at shine one of the biggest retailers out there in the world uh, out of china yeah. they're yeah. delivering more products i think it's 6000 SKUs a week um, yeah. and being shipped around the world so on the one here we're hearing oh they're so concerned about sustainability yeah, yep. well, maybe, but I guess where I look at both of those is how they impact a retailer in the store. Because if I'm yep. uh, a guy and I buy most of my products as used and you put me in charge of the Tommy Hilfiger or Tommy Bahama or Tom Ford, any other Tom I can think of, uh, <laughs> are you really going to be able to sell that merchandise? Are you really going to be able yeah. to make a customer feel confident? So I'd just be curious about your thoughts on either or both of those. Yeah, I think you bring up some excellent points, and uh, I wouldn't discount those. I think you're bang on. I, I do think, though, that almost like when e-commerce started and e-commerce even now, it's going to take a while for companies to figure out how to make money 
on the used thing. I do think there is a market there. I do think you can make money. But I think people are still figuring it out in terms of how to make money. And that was very similar with e-commerce. There's only a handful of companies still who are making money with e-commerce. They're still trying to figure out how to make money, to your point about reverse, right? And uh, handling returns and all those things, right? So um, I do think uh, th there is hope there. I do think someone will figure it out uh, eventually because there is a market there and there's supply and demand. So I think someone just has to be smart enough to figure out how you make that work. Um, on the green thing, you're right. I mean... It, it, it is sort of something that's trendy and it's, it's a great marketing piece right now. Um, I think people are going to be forced into taking it more seriously because um, I'm a capitalist, 100 percent. But what I've noticed, uh, and I'm not the only one over the last 50 years, is that wages are fairly flat, but cost of living has went up. And I think younger people, there's, there's more people who are living at the margin and that margin's getting tighter and they have to find new ways of surviving. And I think that this is going to force them to um, to think about doing things green. I do think, too, as the weather starts to get worse and worse and worse, you know, I've noticed a marked difference between the last 10 years. Um, I do think that uh, governments may have to put some more legislation in because consumers may demand it. And companies are going to have to take this even more serious. You know, and, and it's going to be a bit of a sort of a wrestling match between the right and the left. But um, I do think the weather patterns are probably going to, Mother Nature's probably going to break the tie on this one. So again, it's one of those things where I think it's new. You're right, there's all kinds of ugliness and inefficiencies and poor economics. But I think the raw material is there for these things to stick. But someone's going to have to get real innovative in terms of how you pick the right business model. Excellent. Well, before we continue, we love our loyal listeners. If you do me a favor, give us a five-star rating after this episode. I would appreciate it. And we're going to return after this word from SalesRx, online retail sales training. As the pandemic restrictions have ended, customers are being drawn back to brick-and-mortar stores. And online sales, well, they're declining. What do you need to convert more lookers to buyers and help those who came in to buy just one item to take home more? Well, you train your crew how to engage a stranger and make the sale. Now that's gotten harder since the pandemic, but there's an easy solution. SalesRx, my online retail sales training program, which is in use on four continents with hundreds and thousands of learners. It's the smart way to boost conversions and add-ons. Just go to salesrx.com to learn more. Now back to our program. We're back with Bruce Winder, author of the book, Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19. So Bruce, why do so many brands chase lower price points in an era that customers can't even find what they're looking for? Yeah, you know what? I think it's uh, it's one of those areas where it's like a temptation. It's like, it's like crack cocaine. You sort of get on it and you need to hit certain volume numbers and, and uh, price points and and market share numbers and even sales numbers. And it's sort of like a race to the bottom. You know, they go there and they try to reach that lower point because there's some volume there. You can get a rush. You can get, you know, a, a quick bump in sales if you uh, come out with these lower price point products. You know, you mentioned Sheen earlier. I mean, look at Sheen. It's, you know, they're practically giving it away in terms of the cost of that and people are eating it up. So I think there's a natural temptation there. And to my point earlier about sort of, you know, income disparity, there's a lot of people living at the margin. So there's a lot of action down there. But to your point, it's not the best place to be. You know, it's really a race to the bottom. You can't make money there unless you have the infrastructure like an Amazon 
or like a Walmart that can actually, you know, make money and still sell stuff for 15 bucks. Um, you know, most people can't. Most people can't make money and sell stuff for 10 or 15 bucks. So they're better off trying to create a unique brand that is, uh, you know, exclusive to them, offer a service, offer something like a niche in the market and charge somewhat of a premium. I think there's, there's better long-term prospects there. Yeah, I would t- totally agree. And, you know, when you talk about trends, uh, we hear that private label is still going very strong. But as we start out this interview, you were talking about how brands are really important that, you know, in fact, was it Levi uh, yesterday that talked about how they're going to go out and buy some more brands that they think they can do more to blow up these brands in a uh, probably a terrible word to use, but to make them bigger sure. uh, by keeping their name instead of absorbing them into the main Levi's line. So which is it? Are we, uh, are we moving to a, Staying with a branded, or are we moving still to private label, or is it? I think I think it's probably both, Bob. In my opinion, Um, you know, both of us have seen a marked increase in private label over the last two or three years from everyone. Every time I read something, it's a new private label from someone, and obviously, you and I know the reasons for that is because you can make more margin, you can control your sourcing, and you can create sort of a loyal uh, following from your from your customers, right? So all the math makes sense. The other thing is that you know. A lot of national brands are selling either Walmart or Amazon, not both. Usually they kind of pick one of the poisons of the other, one of the other. And um, that means that you've got to compete with those big boys on price if it's the same item. So uh, private label helps a lot to differentiate that. Um, I do think that brands are super important. Select brands are super important. Uh, and either it's, it's either sort of a, a label you know, at a retailer, or it's it's a national brand with some cachet, and even some retailers. So up here, we have a retailer called Canadian Tire. I used to work there for 18 yeah. years, and they've done some some really neat stuff too. Kind of like Target does in the U.S., they get sort of a name, and uh, it already has a lot of cachet. It's kind of already a national brand, and they buy it, you know, and they absorb it, and and they use that. So it's not just sort of you know a no name label. It actually has some some cash already, it already has some brand equity and and they can control that. So I think brands are going to be big. You know, there's a lot of discussion right now on the whole DTC direct to consumer play. I know there was uh, an analyst uh, in New York who came out with sort of a counter argument on that, which is interesting, you know, in terms of can you make money? But I do think that is going to grow. I think you're going to see more national brands trying to sell direct while also selling through channels. So I think branding is going to get even more important than it is now. Excellent. Well, we are come to the end of our time together, my friend. And uh, the name of the podcast is Tell Me Something Good About Retail. So I always ask all of our guests, tell me something good about retail. Okay. Well, what I would say about retail is it's an amazing industry. It's fun. It's ever-changing. It's not for the faint of heart. But you know what? It will live on forever, uh, long after you and I are around. And it's changing all the time. And it's fascinating. It's like an orchestra. It's, uh, it's just beautiful to watch. I love that. And with that, I thank you all. I thank you all for joining us today on Tell Me Something Good About Retail. And uh, you can certainly check out Bruce's book, Retail Before, During and After COVID-19 in your favorite independent or online store. And thanks for being a guest today. I appreciate it, Bruce. Yeah, thanks, Bob. I really appreciate the time. You've been listening to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, The Retail Doctor. As a listener, you can receive free information and guides when you visit retaildoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. 
Thanks for being with us. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. To virtually bring Bob to all of your crew and associates, check out www.salesrx.com. 